Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please make sure the volume of this podcast is set perfectly to your listening enjoyment. Please take your seat, whether that's on the treadmill, car, sofa, or bed, and buckle in for the last trip. My name is Jamie Beebe, and I'll be your tour guide, recreating someone's last days in paradise. On behalf of myself and everyone behind the scenes, please enjoy the last trip podcast. And because nobody likes a long flight to get to where they want to be, let's prepare for takeoff. David Snedden disappeared on August 14, 2004, while hiking Tiger Leaping Gorge in the Yunnan province of China. He was a college student from Logan, Utah, who was exploring China after finishing his summer language classes in Beijing. Shortly after his disappearance, the Chinese and American governments concluded that he drowned in the gorge. And while his parents didn't believe that, they accepted it. But seven years later, they got a phone call that no one would expect, and it turned their lives upside down. Let's transport ourselves back to the year 2004, when David was on his journey through China. This was a period of significant economic growth because of technology and the internet. China was emerging as a global economic powerhouse, and this was contributing to improved transportation and accommodation for tourists. This pushed more travelers to consider China as a popular new destination. But David wasn't just on vacation. He was in Beijing to immerse himself in the study of Mandarin and Chinese culture. David was fluent in Korean from a previous Mormon mission in South Korea. But it's important to note he wasn't doing missionary work on this trip because it's illegal in China for foreign Latter-day Saints to proselytize there, whether in person or online. Spending time in the capital city of Beijing, he got a crash course in culture, with a population of over 21 million people and a history dating back thousands of years. Among the attractions most visited are the iconic Great Wall, the Forbidden City, and the fascinating Terracotta Army. And nature enthusiasts were beginning to grasp the incredible natural wonders that China had to offer. At its heart is the Forbidden City, a city within walls, a colossal palace complex characterized by towering red and gold buildings, courtyards, and majestic halls. It was originally off-limits to commoners during the imperial era, but it now holds status of a UNESCO World Heritage Site and is a popular destination for tourists. Tiananmen Square is one of the largest city squares globally and is a pivotal spot in the Beijing itinerary. It's a gathering place for important events and celebrations surrounded by historic landmarks and buildings. Venturing just beyond Beijing is the Great Wall of China. It stretches thousands of miles through deserts and mountains. It's an enormous structure built over 2,000 years ago and served as defense against potential invaders. But David's journey took a wrong turn when he went missing in the Yunnan province of China. The details surrounding his disappearance, where, how, and why, remain a mystery. David was in the Yunnan province to hike Tiger Leaping Gorge, also known as the High Trail, a well-marked and maintained 14-mile stretch that normally takes two to three days to complete. In 2004, two trails existed, the High Trail and the Low Trail. David chose the High Trail, giving him a higher vantage point on the cliffs and spectacular views of the gorge. Tiger Leaping Gorge opened to foreign visitors in 1993 and is one of the world's deepest gorges plunges approximately 12,000 feet along the Jinsha River. The name comes from a traditional folktale of a courageous tiger that was being chased by a relentless hunter. To get away, the tiger leapt across the narrowest point of the gorge to escape, and today it's marked by a large rock in the center of the river. 
David's fateful journey started in Lijong Ancient Town, another UNESCO World Heritage Site known for its well-preserved cobblestone streets, canals, and the Mufu Palace, which was the residence of the local rulers during the Ming Dynasties. The town is a picturesque starting point for the trail with local markets and the reflective Black Dragon Pool at the foot of Jade Dragon Snow Mountain. From Lijong, multiple buses transport eager hikers on a two-hour ride to Kaotu, a small town at the trail's entry point. Once you arrive, you'll need the necessary permits for the hike, costing around $9. The trek begins with a symbolic crossing of the Yangtze River Bridge, spanning the Jinsha River and marking the entrance to the gorge. Along the route, hikers encounter the infamous 28 Bends, a challenging uphill stretch with winding switchbacks and 28 sharp bends, presenting the most significant elevation gain in your hike. The midpoint of the hike welcomes exhausted hikers to the halfway house, a common resting point offering basic accommodations and refreshments. This large and charming guest house is owned by friendly locals and a favorite stop for many travelers. Various other guest houses dot the trail throughout the length, providing opportunities for overnight stays and connections with other backpackers. And most guest houses offer a night stay for around $5. Among the guest houses, Tina's guest house stands out as a favorite and also where David reportedly stayed for a night. Near this guest house is Tiger Leaping Stone, the rock in the river that was immortalized by the legend of the Tiger's Leap. More adventurous travelers can descend down to the gorge and cross a rope bridge near the stone, getting really close to the roaring water below. The return journey involves the thrilling Sky Ladder, a 30-year-old set of steps with 70 rusty rings that earned nicknames like Ladder to Heaven and Towering Ladder of Death. Despite its reputation for safety, the absence of guides, ropes, and helmets, it adds quite the exciting element of risk to your day. Although it's not recommended for solo travelers, most reviews said it was perfectly safe. The entire journey to the rock takes about three to four hours, but it promises a once-in-a-lifetime experience, breathtaking views, and a surge of adrenaline. Continuing along the trail, there are several waterfalls, popular viewing points, and the dynamic Middle Rapids, a section of the gorge with turbulent rapids. Zongdong Village is a traditional Noxi settlement along the route that allows travelers to immerse into the local lifestyle and architecture, giving a glimpse into a unique culture that has its own distinct language and traditions. The end of the trail is normally marked with a four-hour bus ride to Shangri-La, a city of enchantment and central fusion. It was originally named Zongdian, but underwent an official renaming in 2001, drawing inspiration from James Hilton's book, Lost Horizon, to promote tourism. Shangri-La is nestled close to the Tibet border and the Haba Snow Mountains. At the heart of the city stands the Song Sanlin Monastery, often referred to as Little Potala Palace, attracting visitors with its rich Tibetan Buddhist heritage. Shangri-La Old Town serves as the main urban center with a blend of traditional Tibetan and Han Chinese architecture. This is where shops, restaurants, and guest houses cater to the needs of tourists, giving a vibrant contrast to a backdrop of snow-capped mountains and alpine meadows. From here, most travelers take a bus back to Lishang, thus marking the conclusion of their journey. This was also David's plan. He ate lunch in Shangri-La around noon and told the restaurant owner he was on his way to the nearby bus stop but he was never seen again. Or was he? Because this story might have an ending stranger than fiction. 
David's parents, Roy and Kathleen, met as undergrads in college, fell madly in love, and have been married for over 60 years. They were both professors at the University of Nebraska for over 40 years, and in that time, welcomed 11 children, with David as their youngest, arriving on May 3, 1980. The devout Mormon family lived in Nebraska and traveled on missionaries all over the world. After retiring, they settled in Logan, Utah. The family not only traveled to far away and sometimes very remote places, but they also enjoyed hiking, backpacking, and camping through Wyoming. They would spend weeks there every summer with their close-knit family. David was extremely smart and outgoing. He had lots of friends, was adventurous, driven, and could sometimes be an overachiever. He loved sports and ran cross-country in high school, but there was a softer side of him, loving musicals and joining the swing choir. While he was an Eagle Scout, he learned wilderness survival, making him capable and comfortable in the outdoors. After graduating high school, at the age of 17 in 1997, he attended Brigham Young University for two years and then chose to go on his mission trip in Seoul, South Korea. And a mission trip, in the simplest terms, is when Mormons go to another country and spread their religion. In those two years, he became fluent in the Korean language. He realized he had a high understanding of languages and, after the two years, went back to Brigham Young to get an Asian languages degree. He majored in Chinese and business with a minor in Korean. After studying Mandarin, his plan was to go to Beijing that summer for more language classes and to spend time immersed in the culture before finishing up his senior year. After graduation, he would continue his studies in law school and become an international lawyer. He was a happy and amazing kid that had his whole life planned out before things somehow got derailed. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. In April of 2004, David and his friend George Bailey, also from BYU, arrived in Beijing to spend their summer learning Mandarin at the University of International Relations. The boys rented an apartment together and by all accounts had one of the best summers of their lives. While David was there, he emailed his family two to three times a week to stay in touch. He was excited to be there and have the experience, but also looking forward to going home and finishing up his final year of college. After classes ended, the pair planned to spend a couple days sightseeing other parts of China, then go their separate ways to explore, with David eventually making his way to visit his brother Michael, who was living in South Korea, on August 26 before flying back to the States to attend classes. So on August 5, 2004, George and David left their things with a friend of David's in Beijing, just taking what they'd need for the couple of weeks, and embarked on their adventures. David withdrew $300 US from his bank account to cover any costs, and they boarded a 27-hour overnight sleeper train to a city called Guilin. 
The boys had an incredible few days together, mountain biking, rafting, and enjoying the sights. On August 9th, George left to visit friends in a city nearby, and David was off to hike Tiger Leaping Gorge, so the boys parted ways. David spent a night in Lijiang, emailing his family in the morning of August 11th, writing, I'm in Lijiang now in western Yunnan province. I will take a bus to hike Tiger Leaping Gorge in about a half an hour. I'm having a great time here, but nonetheless, I'm excited to come home. And that was the last time anyone that knew David ever heard from him. He had mapped out a detailed itinerary of his trip. First, he'd drop his backpack off in Kautu at Jane's guest house, only taking his smaller fanny pack. Then spend two full days backpacking through Tiger Leaping Gorge, stop in Shangri-La, then take the bus back to Lijiang, hop a flight on August 15th at 10.15pm from nearby Kunming to Hayden Island before picking his backpack up in Beijing and then flying to Seoul. A couple days after the boys separated, George emailed David several times to get the contact information for the friend in Beijing they'd left their luggage with, but David never responded. Unfortunately, George didn't think too much of it, assuming David was on the trail without internet access. David's parents also weren't too concerned not hearing from David for a few days, thinking they would hear from him when he got to Seoul. But on August 26th, Michael showed up at the airport, and David never got off the plane. He called Kathleen, and her worst fears were confirmed, because no one knew where David was. David's family immediately alerted the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and they reported him missing to authorities who began a search. In the weeks that followed David's disappearance, Chinese authorities conducted an initial investigation but came up empty. David was not in any hospital, mental ward, or jail. His body hadn't surfaced, and his passport had not been used. The $700 left in his bank account was not touched. Local police immediately ruled out murder or violent crime because that was practically non-existent in the region, especially for an American. It was hard to believe they didn't find any clues during this initial investigation because David stuck out like a sore thumb. He was tall and white with thinning hair and braces, spoke fluent Korean and Mandarin, yet supposedly no one could remember seeing him. Because of this, David's parents questioned whether Chinese authorities were really looking for David. If he was there, he'd be remembered. Locals wouldn't forget meeting a young American boy speaking both Korean and Mandarin. Because they didn't find him, Chinese officials concluded that David had fallen in the Jinsha River and died. Of course, his parents weren't going to just accept this, especially without a body. He was an experienced hiker, and the gorge wasn't that strenuous of a hike. And while mudslides and falling rocks have claimed a handful of hikers over the past couple of decades, the body was recovered every single time. So his parents did what any parent would and went to look for their child. They would retrace his steps, conduct their own investigation, and bring him home. On September 9, 2004, Roy and his two sons, Michael and James, went to Yunnan province with every intention of finding David and ending this nightmare. They met with police and got settled in to start their search. They hired a translator and a hiking guide and started the journey. They reached Kautu where the bus would have dropped David off from Lijiang to begin the trek, thinking surely someone would have seen him. They taped a large missing person poster with David's photo on it to their shirts and simply walked around town hoping someone would reach out with information, but they didn't have any luck, so they continued on. When they entered the trail on September 13th, they noticed a few things. First of all, the Chinese authorities told them the trail was very treacherous, but nothing about the hike was even remotely concerning to the group. 
and the path was so wide and well-maintained they saw several Jeeps and 4x4 vehicles on it. David would have no issues on the trail. They were told David fell off the trail and into the gorge getting swept away, but that seemed pretty impossible because there really wasn't anywhere steep enough to fall and make it all the way into the water. The river was too far down, and while there were a couple of slight drop-offs, there were no straight cliffs. If he fell, he might roll a little way down, but not all the way. Not only that, at the bottom, between the mountain and the river, was a regularly traveled highway. They noticed missing person posters of David plastered on poles and trees with a bunch of policemen wandering the trail with bloodhounds, but it had been a month, and any smells of David would be long gone. They had the feeling it was all for show for their benefit, because the police already decided David fell into the river and drowned. Another observation was how busy the trail was. They saw school children making their way down, groups of locals, single hikers, and other foreigners. They made note of how frequently they saw guest houses or places to buy food and water. It was a widely used trail, so if David had fallen or had an accident, somebody would have found him by now. Before his family arrived in China, the U.S. Embassy developed the film they found in David's backpack. And while it didn't hold any clues, they were able to narrow down what he was wearing and also what he had with him in the smaller pack. He brought the Lonely Planet's travel guide to China, the Book of Mormon, and toothpaste. They searched for anything along the trail that could be David's belongings, but found nothing. What they did end up finding was at least nine people that they believed saw or talked to David on the trail. And the most important part about finding the witnesses is that it proved David made it out of the gorge, so he couldn't have drowned. The first sighting was a local tour guide named He Shu Chong, and his story was too detailed for it not to have been David. On August 11th, he was hiking with a married couple from Hong Kong when he spotted a pale westerner marching up the mountain path at about 7 p.m. This man wore a blue t-shirt, gray shorts, and had a fanny pack tied to his waist with a floppy brimmed hat covering his head. He politely asked the group in flawless Mandarin if he could join on their hike. The couple liked the boy right away and said yes. From there, they hiked with him for several hours, chatting in both Mandarin and English, while he helped the group with their English skills. They went through the gorge together and got to Tina's guest house around 10 p.m. And the next morning, David continued alone up the route toward Shangri-La. And that's the last time they saw him. He remembered David so clearly because an American who speaks Korean, Mandarin, and English fluently is not easily forgotten. David's family made their way to Tina's guest house the next afternoon, but the police had already been there. Chinese law requires hotels and guest houses to keep a written log of foreign visitors, complete with names and passport numbers. But when they asked to see the log, the workers told them they no longer had any paperwork from the month of August. The police had confiscated the check-ins, and in fact, they had confiscated the check-in paperwork at every single lodge along the trail. And his family has never been able to see the paperwork, making them think there might have been some kind of a cover-up. They asked everyone at the guest house if they recognized David, but came up empty-handed, wondering now if the police had warned workers not to give the family any information. From Tina's, the road splits in two directions. One route loops back to the trailhead and the other continues north to Shangri-La. David's final email mentioned how excited he was to be so close to Tibet while in Shangri-La, so they knew that's the path he took. Their next stop was about two kilometers down the path at Sean's guest house, where they encountered another witness who remembered David. From there, they got on a bus for the four-hour ride to Shangri-La, but when they arrived, they couldn't find anyone that had seen David. 
and they were starting to feel pretty discouraged. The next day, David's brother Michael hung back and went to Old Town, while the others checked along the outskirts of the city. Michael, being exhausted and worried about his brother, sat on a bench to collect his thoughts. After a few minutes, he looked up and saw a restaurant named Yak Bar. It was a cozy one-room Korean restaurant with wooden floors and pink walls filled with Korean flags. It was located about 100 yards from a police station and a fairly large jail, and about two kilometers from the bus stop that David would have used to get back to Lishong. David loved all things Korean, and Michael just knew that if David made it to Shangri-La, he would have ended up at Yak Bar. With new hope, he stepped inside and met one of the owners, a woman in her 20s, named Zhang Zhou Fen. When she saw the photo of David, her face immediately lit up. She remembered him well. She described his clothing and said she was enchanted by the fact he spoke both Mandarin and Korean. She told Michael that David visited the Yak Bar restaurant a total of three times over two days. She even remembered what he ordered to eat, saying he had ordered cheaply being on a tight budget, and she recounted their conversations in Korean. Jong said she last saw him around noon on August 14th when he stopped in for lunch and to say goodbye. He told her he was headed to the bus stop to make it back to Lishang by evening. This lined up perfectly with David's itinerary, so they knew they were on the right track. They also met another tour guide who remembered meeting David in the Snowland restaurant and coffee shop in Shangri-La, and a woman who said David spent the night in her guest house there. With the new information, they were able to zero in on the neighborhood and met even more people that remembered David. There were other employees and owners of neighboring shops that all remembered meeting the Westerner that spoke Mandarin and Korean. So now David's family knew he made it to Shangri-La and could not have fallen in the gorge or had an accident on the trail. But that's all it meant. David's path stopped and there was no record of him boarding the bus. In fact, there was not another sighting of David after walking out the door of the Yak Bar on August 14, 2004. The search hit a dead end and there were no more tangible leads. Out of options, his family gave their findings to the police and went back to Utah, expecting the Chinese government to follow up with the new information they uncovered. But it took eight months for Chinese authorities to conduct their own interviews with the witnesses that saw David, and every single one of them changed their story. The Snedens tried to get the U.S. government involved, but the embassy in Beijing said because there were no tangible leads, they agreed that David drowned in Tiger Leaping Gorge. The Snedens had nowhere to turn. They were certain David was not in the gorge, but had no choice other than to accept the government's decision. And that's where the story ended. Until they got a phone call seven long years later that completely turned their lives around. Stay tuned after these messages to find out more. After seven long years of being told their son was dead and the case was closed, in April of 2011, a man named Chuck Downs called David's parents and told them he believed David had been kidnapped by North Korea and might still be alive. But how is that possible? North Korea is 1,700 miles away from where David was in China. Who was this guy on the phone? How would they possibly kidnap him? Why would they want David? And most importantly, where is he now? Chuck Downs is a former Pentagon official who worked on North Korea issues and went on to become the executive director for the Washington-based Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. So he was getting information from within the walls of the country. Before I try to give you guys a crash course on what I learned about North Korea while researching this episode, 
Let me just tell you, I really had no idea North Korea had been kidnapping people for so many years, or at all. And not just a couple people here and there that got too close to the border, but a lot of people from all around the world. And this is a never-ending rabbit hole to jump down, so I'm going to give you the briefest background, and if you're interested, I totally suggest doing your own research because it's nuts. But it's all true. It's not a conspiracy theory or an unfounded rumor. Because in 2002, North Korea actually admitted that they had been kidnapping Japanese people. Kim Jong-il met with Japan's prime minister and acknowledged that he had indeed been abducting Japanese citizens throughout the 1970s and 80s. But he only admitted to a tiny amount of what he'd actually been doing, and we'll get to that in a minute. Kim Jong-il said North Korean agents had abducted 13 Japanese citizens for various purposes, including training North Korean spies in Japanese language and culture. They literally kidnapped random people from beaches, right off the street, and even people who thought they were going for job interviews. After this revelation, Kim Jong-il apologized and gave back five people. He said the others had all died, although many people doubt that's true. When the five people came back, they told the real story. North Korea was actually abducting people from lots of different countries, not just Japan. And these abductions were ongoing. They didn't just occur in the 70s and 80s. No surprise, but Kim Jong-il wasn't completely truthful when he supposedly came clean to Japan. It's proven that for years, North Korea has been abducting people from South Korea, Japan, Malaysia, Thailand, Romania, and France, along with substantiated rumors of kidnappings from many other countries. They're kept in North Korea to teach language and culture, train spies, and a famous South Korean director and actress were even taken to help make more professional propaganda films. They also took in defectors, including Charles Jenkins, a former United States Army sergeant. In 1965, he was stationed near the Korean demilitarized zone, had a few beers, was disillusioned with military life, walked over, and surrendered to North Korea. They kept him and forced him to teach English. He married a Japanese woman who had also been abducted, and they had three kids. They ended up letting him go as part of the treaty with Japan, and he got out on July 9, 2004. And the timing was important because Charles was one of the only English-speaking people in North Korea, so they needed to replace him if they were going to continue learning English. And this was just one month before David went missing. So the rumor is that Kim Jong-il put the word out that they needed to find someone new to teach them English. But how could they have found David? Well, David was in the middle of the perfect storm. North Koreans escape through a kind of underground railroad, and one of these underground railroads goes right through Tiger Leaping Gorge, the exact spot David was last seen. China is not a good place for North Korean refugees because they're allies with North Korea. So if they're caught before they get to a safe country, they'll be sent back, which means they'll face imprisonment and probably death. And in 2004, a lot of North Koreans were trying to, and succeeding, in escaping. But China was helping North Korea by keeping their eyes and ears out for escapees, as well as the people that were helping them. Someone like David, a missionary who spoke fluent Korean, Mandarin, and English, not only stuck out as the type of person who would help with the Underground Railroad, but he would also be extremely valuable to North Korea. But in 2004, it never crossed anyone's mind that North Korea kidnapped David. Which brings us to 2011. Nicholas Kraft was a Mormon attorney who served his mission in South Korea right after David and knew about his disappearance. He was interviewing for a job with Chuck Downs at the Committee for Human Rights, and as a side note, 
he asked whether they had considered David as a possible kidnapping victim. He had done a lot of research about the abductions and saw similar patterns between David's disappearance and other known abductions. Almost all the abductions occurred in the summer months leading up to August 15th, which is North Korea's Liberation Day. Everyone that had been abducted had recently been in a Korean-run cafe or restaurant. He was alone. He was on the path of the Underground Railroad, and there wasn't a single clue. Now, this was out of left field for Chuck. He didn't even know about David's disappearance because China said he drowned in the gorge and the United States agreed. When he looked into it, he realized it could be a possibility. So he put some feelers out trying to get information and got some. The story the Committee for Human Rights heard from an anonymous source was that David was arrested in China near the gorge after leaving Yakbar. They either thought he was helping the North Korean defectors or they realized how valuable he was. They kept him for a little while and when they heard his family was coming to look for him, they handed him over to five North Korean secret agents who shuttled him into their country. It's important to note this was likely done by corrupt or rogue officers and not something the Chinese authorities or government would actively do. So this is when, going off of these rumors, Chuck Downs called David's parents, who were at first a little skeptical, but definitely willing to listen. The Snuddens went to Washington, D.C. and met with the Committee for Human Rights, along with other families of abductees, and after hearing all the stories, they were convinced North Korea kidnapped David. And now the ball was rolling but they still needed proof. In May of 2012, the Tokyo nonprofit National Association for the Rescue of Japanese Kidnapped in North Korea said one of their sources obtained documents that in August of 2004, a 23 or 24-year-old American studying at a Chinese university was arrested in Yunnan province on charges of helping illegal residents. According to the documents, authorities released the American in September and he'd ended up in the hands of these five North Korean agents who were in the area searching for defectors. Basically, the same exact story they heard earlier, just taking out the part about China actually handing him over. Then, in June of 2012, a man with close ties to the North Korean defector community said an American in his early 30s who matched David's description was teaching English outside Pyongyang, the North Korean capital. And guys, there are not a lot of people in North Korea matching David's description, so it's hard to believe this source could be mistaken. With all of this new information, the Snedens started reaching out to the U.S. government asking for help. They wrote letter after letter, met with members of the State Department, including Hillary Clinton, but the U.S. was pretty much unresponsive to their pleas. They weren't going to stop. They were a squeaky wheel for years, begging the U.S. to help. Then, on September 1, 2016, Choi Soon-young, head of the Family Union, a Seoul-based advocacy group for South Korean abductees in North Korea, received even more information about David. And this time, it was extremely detailed. A credible, anonymous source told him David was kidnapped and taken to North Korea and became Kim Jong-un's personal English teacher. So all these years, he'd been teaching Kim Jong-il's children English and American culture. But that's not all. This source said they gave him the North Korean name of Yoon Bong-soo, and he married a woman named Kim Eun-hae. They had two children, a boy and a girl, and were living in a special area near the capital called an invite-only zone, which is a contained area where they kept a lot of people they kidnapped in order to keep them from escaping. Kind of like a prison camp, but much nicer. 
They went on to say that since the information had been released, David and his family were moved to a more remote area about 160 kilometers north of Pyongyang, and he's under increased surveillance. And that wasn't the only sighting of David. He was also seen at Chosun Red Cross Hospital and the Bangsu Church in Pyongyang. But how did they get this information? It's not like people from North Korea can call another country or send an email. Well, apparently they kind of can. Someone with a Chinese phone and a Korean phone stands close enough to the border to call each country from their respective phones and then relay information. And how can we know this source is telling the truth? First of all, there's no reason to make it up. No one in the government was looking for or even asking about David. Also, it's hard to make up something so detailed. And we know that North Korea does marry off the people they kidnap to deter them from trying to escape and keep them in line. They're not going to try to escape if it means leaving their children behind to be killed. It all fits into what we already knew about life in North Korea for abductees. With this information, surely the U.S. government would try to get David back, right? Wrong. The official position of the United States and Chinese government is still that David died after falling into the Jinsha River while hiking Tiger Leaping Gorge, even though his body was never found. Even though China wasn't very cooperative in the investigation and they never even handed over the hotel registries. And by the time they interviewed witnesses, they were all too scared to talk. And the U.S. Embassy in Beijing told the family they couldn't release any other information about David's case without David's permission because of privacy laws. Obviously, they're using a loophole. Even after all this new evidence, authorities continued to deny there was anything credible supporting that David is still alive. During the Obama administration, North Korea denied having David, calling it far-fetched and saying the U.S. was just trying to tarnish their reputation. But really, how far-fetched could it be after admitting to kidnapping foreigners in 2002? Regardless of all this evidence, David is not on any list of American detainees in North Korea. Senator Mike Lee and Congressman Chris Stewart, both from Utah, have been campaigning since 2016 to get him on the list, but so far, no luck. The Snuddens have not given up and in 2019 hoped that Trump would ask Kim Jong-un during their second summit, but Trump never mentioned David. With a new election coming up, let's hope someone will look into David's disappearance. His parents are well into their 80s, and they deserve to know where their son is. I mentioned earlier that I had no idea North Korea had been systematically kidnapping foreigners for over 60 years. Granted, politics really aren't my thing as I gravitate toward true crime when I'm reading the news, but this is one of those times it intersects. And while it hasn't been a priority in the U.S. to look into these kidnappings, it's considered a top international human rights issue in Japan. Since the Korean War in 1953, North Korea is suspected to have abducted 3,824 South Koreans, and this is beyond the 100,000 taken during the war. They're also suspected to have taken as many as 100 Japanese people and 200 Chinese people. And according to the U.S. Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, there have been at least 25 additional abductions from countries including France, Italy, Jordan, Lebanon, Netherlands, Romania, and Thailand. While North Korea's motives aren't totally clear, there are some that have come to light. In 1976, Kim Jong-il started trying to strengthen his intelligence operations. So he targeted linguists who could teach foreign languages to North Korean spies. 
An example of this is that in 1987, North Korean agent Kim Hyung-hui spent three years taking Japanese lessons from an abductee and then boarded Korean Air Flight 858 with a fake Japanese passport and planted a bomb that killed 115 people. So, given just the super brief overview of details in this podcast, what happened to David Snedden? Could he have died a tiger-leaping gorge? Well, anything is possible. But for that to happen, he would have had to leave Shangri-La, get back on the bus for four hours to the trail, then have an accident. But if that was his plan, he never would have made it back in time to get on his next flight. Also, there has never been a single clue found that David went back to the trail. Not his body, any clothing, or anything he had with him was ever found. And with all the witness accounts, we know he made it to Shangri-La out of the gorge. So along with David's family, I think he was kidnapped by North Korea and has been living there for the last 20 years. And if that's the case, his life looks a lot different than it would in the U.S. Life in North Korea is very hard for their citizens. The government maintains fearful obedience by using threats, torture, executions, imprisonment, enforced disappearances, and forced labor. They do whatever they want to their citizens, and nothing stops them. There's no freedom of thought, expression, or information. All media is strictly controlled. Any phones, computers, television, radio, or any media content not sanctioned by the government is illegal and considered anti-socialist behavior and is severely punished. Even just moving from one province to another or traveling is illegal. And during COVID, border guards were under orders to unconditionally shoot anyone entering or leaving without permission. North Korea is one of the poorest countries in the world, regularly having food shortages, they struggle to provide for their people, and many in the rural areas are malnourished and starving. If David is living in North Korea, it's likely his life is better than most, as long as he goes along with whatever he's told. He's very valuable if he's teaching English, so he probably has a decent but very minimal living situation. He could have been tortured or brainwashed, and probably too scared to try to escape. Kathleen thinks her son is probably safe, at least for now, but she knows there's a very present danger in North Korea. And if one day Kim Jong-un decides he doesn't like David anymore for any reason, he could be killed. She told the media, If any one of our children had to be abducted and cope with a difficult situation, it's David. He has a great personal belief, and on the inside, he's very strong. The family hopes somehow David could be a blessing to the people of North Korea. And after hearing about his wife and children, they realize he might no longer be in a position to come home if it means leaving his family. But they do hope one day him and his family will have the option to live and worship how they want. Assuming David is alive and in North Korea, how can we get him home? Well, that's hard because David will be a huge negotiating chip because he's so valuable to them. To help find David and bring him home, we need more awareness. You can go to usa.gov slash elected officials and search for your representatives and write them a letter. Contact your local media and ask them to do a story about David. Post it on your social media so more people know David's story. If we all work together, maybe we can make a change. Maybe we can bring David home. Is it safe to travel to China? Overall, yes. Always check with the U.S. Department of State Travel Advisories. On June 30th, 2023, the U.S. Department of State issued a travel advisory urging U.S. citizens to reconsider traveling to China due to concerns over the arbitrary enforcement of local laws, including in relation to exit bans and the risk of wrongful detentions. While that is a valid warning and may sound pretty scary, these warnings change all the time. 
If you are going to China, be aware of the customs and the laws, be respectful, don't cause a commotion or any drama, stay aware of your surroundings, and avoid confrontations. Avoid any demonstrations or protests, and don't take videos or photos during one because that could land you in a lot of trouble. China is visited by travelers from all around the world, and people who understand local cultures and obey laws will be fine. The crime rate in China is very low, especially violent crime. That's because China has a strict legal system with severe penalties. For example, drug offenses can carry the death penalty, and Chinese authorities can randomly test foreign nationals for drugs, including upon entry to the country. So, if you test positive, Chinese authorities can prosecute regardless of where or when you took the drugs. China also places a strong emphasis on social harmony and stability, and they maintain a visible police presence. They also have very strict gun laws, so the general population doesn't have access to guns. The recorded homicide rate per 100,000 people in China is about a tenth of the global average. But that is the recorded crime rate and may not reflect actual crime in China. And there is a very high rate of domestic violence in China, which is as high as 40% of women facing domestic violence due to the deeply entrenched patriarchal norms ingrained within society. But, as a responsible tourist, yes, China is very safe in terms of street crime. And as far as the political situation, it can change at a moment's notice, so just stay up to date. Make sure you don't have any anti-government activity linked to your name or online accounts. Don't take pictures of politically sensitive material, listen to the police, don't mention any politics for any reason, and get used to being tracked by the government because facial recognition and passport scanning is everywhere. Other than that, you should be totally fine. One very important note is that most of your favorite websites are blocked by China. Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, Wikipedia, Pinterest, Snapchat, Google, Yahoo, Spotify, WhatsApp, YouTube, Twitter, Reddit, Netflix, Skype, and the list literally goes on and on. All of those are blocked by China. You'll need to use a VPN or virtual private network to access any of those blocked websites. And while using a VPN isn't necessarily illegal, Many of them are banned, and it can carry jail time if a Chinese citizen is caught using it. As far as tourists using a VPN, there isn't much they can do, but be very cautious if you're using public Wi-Fi. China has many traditions and customs that are probably different from your home country, but here are a few common ones. They place a strong emphasis on respect for their elders, and it's customary to show that both in speech and behavior. That being said, greetings in China have kind of a hierarchy. When you first meet someone, it's customary to introduce yourself with your full name, occupation, and where you work. If you're in a group of friends, the older person should be introduced to the younger person first, and people of lower jobs should be introduced to the more authoritative person first. Always introduce men before women, and the host should be introduced before the guests. And don't bow when greeting someone. A handshake is appropriate. Personal space and physical contact, like hugging or touching, may be less common in some traditional Chinese cultures. And never touch anyone's head, even playing around, because it's considered to be the most sacred part of the body. Don't point at anything with one finger in public. It's seen as extremely rude. Rather, gesture to something with the entire palm of your hand. Remove your shoes when you enter someone's home and bring a gift with you. And when you do, present it with both hands. But avoid giving clocks as gifts because the word for clock sounds similar to the word for funeral in Chinese, so it can be considered an omen. Also avoid giving white flowers, which are associated with funerals. Always wait to be invited before starting to eat your meal. And it's polite to try a bit of everything offered. And it's customary to leave a little food on your plate to indicate when you've had enough.
Never stick your chopsticks into your food because it looks like incense at a funeral and is essentially an omen of death. But burping, spitting, and farting are all perfectly acceptable in China. Tipping is not common, and in some cases, leaving money on the table can be confusing or even considered strange. Always avoid talking about politics, including Tibet or Taiwan. The emergency number for China is 110, and for medical emergencies, it's 120. And something I find both inspiring and odd is that people have no problem taking a nap whenever and wherever they feel sleepy. They'll just put their head down on a table or desk and go to sleep. I experienced it when I was in Disneyland, China, and thought it was the strangest thing I have ever seen. I was in the cafeteria eating a pizza shaped like Mickey Mouse, and people at almost every table had their heads down fast asleep. It was like the Twilight Zone. But guys, most of all, remember, whenever you're traveling, always inform someone about your plans before going anywhere. Tell someone reliable where you're going and what you'll be doing, and when to expect you back. And my number one tip to staying alive on vacation is to pay attention to your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it isn't. David Snedden went missing in the Yunnan province in southern China near Tiger Leaping Gorge on August 14, 2004. He is white with short brown, slightly thinning hair, and was likely carrying a small fanny pack, had braces, and was 24 years old. He is fluent in Korean, Mandarin, and English. Today, David would be 44 years old, and there's reason to believe he has been abducted by North Korea and is being held against his will. Urge your representatives to take action. Let's find David and give his family the peace they deserve. And finally, remember to leave a review and rate this podcast five stars if you like the show, or hell, even if you don't. But either way, feel free to let me know what you think. Please follow The Last Trip on Instagram at The Last Trip Crime Pod and subscribe on Patreon to support the show. You'll get extra research, videos, photos, and updates, and even learn about my personal travels. Patreon.com slash The Last Trip Podcast. I'm Jamie Beebe, bringing you your last trip and signing off until the next one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>